Tan Vin, a reporter for the Seattle Times, uh, he came to the U.S. when he was about six years old as a refugee from Vietnam and was living in the D.C., Maryland area. And he started working in newspapers at around 1993. And he was working, I think, first at the Rocky Mountain Telegram in North Carolina um, as a general assignment reporter, court reporter. He's covered a ton of beats over the years. Military reporters, city hall, education, food and drink. And at one point, he became the outdoors reporter, the hiking reporter for the Seattle Times. And that is in part because there were other people who wanted the plum rolls of uh, going to Hawaii or Europe, and they were like, screw it, you know? You run marathons, you go hiking, you be that guy. Um, and so he did that for several years, and one night, not too long ago, he said to me, you know, hiking is bullshit. And I asked him why he thought that was, and he elaborated some reasons, and so that's one of the reasons we invited him up here this year, so, Tan Vin, hiking is bullshit. So, the title of this talk is kind of obnoxious, I know. But, but I'm not going to try to convince you that hiking is bullshit. I just want to show you a different perspective not so much from a city slicker, more like from a, I don't know, whiny refugee, maybe? And there's a difference, there's a difference. Uh, let me explain. <clears throat> a few years ago, I went hiking up to a fire lookout with a buddy. Uh, we had registered to stay there overnight. If you know anything about lookouts, they're like usually perched on like the highest peak, which is another way of saying the hike is hell. It's long, it's steep. It's difficult. But we made it. And once up top, it was clear we had different views, even though we took the same trail, left at the same time, and arrived at the same place. Now, he's white, middle class, and his first impression was that we were at a historic fire lookout, listed in the National Register. It harkens to Gary Snyder and the Poets of the Peak. Uh, when you're inside, you can see the window framing Mount Daniels to the south. And if you press your nose against the window, you could get a little glimpse of the old growth hemlocks below the wild sky wilderness. That's what he saw. That's not what I saw. Uh, I saw creaky floors, leaky roof, windows that shook in the wind. I saw the ranger had left us a note. It said, clean up after you eat. Don't leave food out. We have a rat problem. And I'm thinking, of all this shit to worry about, bears, mountain lions, rats are not figuring to my top 10 list of wildlife to be aware of. But so then I stepped outside. I took a few steps back to get a better look at this lookout. And I realized this looks very familiar to me, even though I've never been up here before. I realized that this lookout looked a lot like the slums I grew up in in Vietnam. It looks like thousands of rinky-dink shacks and poor houses and South End, the Central Highlands, and Hanoi in the north. And I had to crack a smile because I thought of my dad. Because my dad would be rolling his grave if he saw me up there. He would be like, 
I risked my life to get you to America, and you dumbass want to stay in a place that resembles where we just escaped from? <laughs> so, <clears throat> so, so needs to say, um, hiking is not my thing, or the outdoors wasn't my thing growing up, uh, especially camping. A lot of issues with camping. And I realize it's not the outdoors that Kerouac, Thoreau, or Rick Bass wax about. But I think that when you're from a third world or war-torn country, I think your dream is to get to America, to have a better future. And that future could be as simple as, or as modest as having a roof over your head, uh, indoor plumbing, uh, paved streets out front. And this concept of just hiking and being vacationing where there's no bed, no hot shower, isn't tempting, very enticing for a lot of us. So I was one of those people. Um, that was like my dirty little secret. It was cool because I live in D.C. No one hikes, so it didn't really matter. And then I moved to Seattle. It's different here, real different. Um, I started noticing things I've never seen before. For instance, people enter lotteries to try to win a campground in the enchantments. And they get very petty and jealous if they don't score one, but their friends do. Uh, people hike barefoot here. I'm not even making this up, it's true. There's an actual local barefoot hiking club. And in fact, I talked to the bike, the hike leader. And I had a zillion questions for him. And then finally he says, you know what? Why don't you just come out and see for yourself? I said, don't mind if I do. So I set my alarm clock. I got up early at sunrise. I drove to the meetup spot. I put in the parking lot. I looked to my right. And sure enough, there they were, hikers, barefooted, stretching at the trailhead. It's like I was so impressed. It's like mind blown. I have not seen so many white people barefooted since a Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> and what they were telling me was that, well, when you hike barefoot, you're more in tune with nature. It enhances your hike. It's like your feet is like rubbing against the pine needle floor. Those little rocks is like massaging your soul. And I assume they meant soul feet, not spiritual soul, but I, I don't know. Um, and they tell me, you know, you hike barefoot, it's like you lose yourself in the hike. You become the hike. You are the hike. It was very zen. Now, for me, as a whiny refugee, <clears throat> I'm going to go on a, out on a limb and say that no one thinks that when they're barefoot in the jungle or fetching water by the countryside. Where I come from, if you're barefoot, it just means you're poor. You, you, don't, you can't afford shoes. It means you're likely from a rural area. You likely wore sandals. And if you did have shoes, you likely, you, you likely wouldn't wear them all the time. You just want to extend their wear. So this is not about white guilt. I don't mean to make fun of people who enjoy the outdoors. I mean, I enjoy the outdoors here and there. My friends enjoy the outdoors. But I'm very aware that white people are very aware that minorities don't hike as much as they do out here. And I've never experienced that before. I'm very self-conscious about that. And I mean, I live in DC, Maryland, Virginia, Georgia, North Carolina, California, New Jersey, somewhere in Kentucky, and none of those places care where the minorities hike or not. <laughs> but not here. I think here, we work, thank you, Brendan. Sorry. 
I think here we work under the premise that minorities don't participate in the outdoors due to economic barriers. And we need to do something about that. Um, for instance, two years ago, actually it was around this time during the summer, New York Times wrote a huge story on the opinion page, caused a lot of ruckus. It talked about how only one out of five visitors to a national park is a minority, far below the population rate. And by the year 2044, minorities will be the majority of the population. So there's all sorts of ramification. I mean, if our parks are underutilized, we'll be underfunded. Who would carry the mantle and environmental issues? And talk about how we need more people of color in the ranks of park rangers. Now, this was a national story in a national publication, but it was very much a Seattle story. The writer was from Seattle. The people who were interviewing the story were from Seattle. The scene he used to set up to tell this story is very familiar to Seattle. It was Mount Rainier. And even prior to that, the Seattle Times ran a front page story. It took like the entire, almost fucking whole front page. It was like minorities in the outdoors, or the lack thereof. And it, it talked about how the State Park and Recreation Commission was in the process of starting a diversity camping experience. It sounded very Portlandia. The goal was to get, was to show minorities that camping doesn't have to resemble boot camp. The goal was to get them gears and even provide guides if they want to be led on some of these excursions. Now, it's not even our state, it's also our ski resorts that care about this. If you were to check back, let's say it was around mid-2000, Mission Ridge Ski Area in Wenatchee, huge Latino population, they started flying the Mexico flag next to the U.S. flag over the ski area. And the reason why was they wanted the Latino community to know that this is your home, this, these are your mountains too. And they were in the process of hiring Spanish-speaking instructors to give free snowboarding lessons as a public service. Snoqualmie Pass had a similar program, but for all minorities. And if you were to check the webpage at Stevens Pass, say, winter 2006, 2007, what you would see is a picture of a black kid smiling as he's holding alpine skis over his right shoulder. And I remember clicking on the next frame. I saw a picture of an Asian snowboarder. Huh. So I was curious. I picked up the phone, said, hi, my name is Tan Vin, reporter with Seattle Times, blah, 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 blah. And the manager at Stevens Pass called me back within an hour, and he's told me, no, it's not a coincidence what you saw. Diversity is very much a part of our mission statement and business plan. And while it's true that it's about profit and increasing your customer base, the other part of that, he said, is he thought it was embarrassing that we as a community didn't do enough to get more minorities involved in the outdoors. I'm not disparaging this movement. I think it has good value, but I also think it's naive. Um, this concept where you think you can strap a snowboard or a backpack onto a minority and expect him or her to embrace the outdoors, I think this concept of where they're poor, they can't afford tents or Gore-Tex or AI, so let's reach in our pocketbooks, let's volunteer our time. I think that's simplifying something that's very complicated and layered. Um, for one thing, Asians are a high-income earner, according to the census. And in fact, depending on what stats or numbers you read, Asians are the highest income earner, more so than whites. And I remember reading about this, I think it was in the Financial Times when I was sitting in a hotel lobby, and I started doing the math in my head. And I was thinking, you know what? All my friends are middle class to upper middle class. All my Asian friends are middle class to upper middle class. 
Most of my Asian friends are first-generation or refugees who grew up poor. Most of my Asian friends don't hike or participate in the outdoors. So what gives? And then I was thinking back to my friend who, um, he worked downtown Seattle. <clears throat> he said that his friends bike to work all the time. He won't do it, refuses to. And the reason why is he grew up in Saigon in the 80s. And have you ever been to Vietnam in the 80s? There's like a million bicycles out in the streets. It's like at I-5 during rush hour, except it's at all hours. It's congested, it's polluted. So he always wanted a car. So he wanted a car so that he could have AC, so he could roll up the window and just crank up the music and just forget, escape from this madness. So when he made it to America, the first thing he did when he saved his money was to buy a car. He didn't want to bike to work. He doesn't want to bike in the Bird Gilman Trail. <laughs> but the one story that's always struck to me, even to this day, is I was at a cocktail party, and it was an obnoxiously rich Asian guy who was talking about how he wanted a bigger boat for his, to keep in his house. But he can't do it because his wife would kill him because she we couldn't squeeze her sports car in their three-car garage or whatever. And someone at the party said, you know, my friend there, he has a sailboat for sale. And then he replies, no, 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 that's too stressful, that's like a nightmare, that's too much work. And what he meant by that was later on in the party, he grew up in the fishing village. And I think it was his uncle, he mentioned, who had owned a rinky-dink boat with a little sail, because his uncle, like everyone else in the village, they couldn't afford a motorboat, so they had these, so they would go sailing 18 hours a day. That's how you make your living. So for him, he associated sailing with hardship and hard time. He associated sailing with being poor. And when I first heard that, I thought it was the most absurd statement I ever heard in my life. And then, you know, I realized it was actually kind of profound. Um, because if you're in Seattle and you say, sailing is for the poor, I think you'd be like, what the fuck is he talking about? Um, I mean, if you were to so sailing with anything, I don't know, it's... Sailing is uh, a rich man's sport, uh, thinking man's sport, uh, something that's bourgeoisie, uh, but you wouldn't associate with being poor. I think that's only something that only a, someone from a third world country would get. Now, I have no issues with sailing, so if you have a sailboat, I'm always available. Uh, <laughs> I don't have issue with hiking, really, or even biking, but I have issues with camping. Always have, because I always associated camping with being in a refugee camp. Um, <clears throat> no one speaks more eloquently about the refugee experience than Pulitzer Prize fiction writer Viet Nguyen. He, thought, he said it's not easy, and he noted that all wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. And for me, my memory of the of the refugee, my refugee camp experience will always be associated with the outcome of the Vietnam War. Um, I grew up in Saigon. Uh, then, of course, the war happened, was uprooted. One day, I'm watching a John Wayne movie. The next day, my father scooped me up and taking me to helicopters. I was one of the last people out of Vietnam. My sister, who has polio, got separated from us amid the chaos. We ended up in the refugee camp but we could not leave the refugee camp to look for her. So needless to say, every night in the camp, it was very stressful. Uh, we didn't know if she could fend for herself. We didn't know if she was alive. And I remember being scared. Scared not so much of dying, more of scared of the uncertainty. 
Um, I didn't know where my sister was. I didn't know where I was. I want to go home. We don't have a home anymore, my dad said. I don't think any father is ever prepared to tell their child that. It's not like talking about the birds and the bees. Um, and as stressful as that situation was, I think it's even more stressful to be in a refugee camp today under the current administration, five times worse than what I went through. I mean, I actually had a positive outcome as a result of being in a refugee camp. Um, my sister did reunite with us, and I went from dreaming of being in America to living in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. And I get goosebumps even thinking about that today. Um, we ended up there because a Lutheran family had sponsored us. And I remember my first month there, all the refugee kids were playing in the church playground, I believe it was, and I, could ease, I eavesdropped in their conversation. And they talked about how um, the church had given them a tour of the nation's capital. One kid said he saw the White House. Another kid said he saw this giant pencil, the Washington Monument. And I got jealous because I wanted to see D.C. I wanted... Um, I went to CDC, and so one day, my sponsor, Ms. Hoffman, said, you know, your special trip is coming up this weekend. I got real excited. I woke up early that Saturday. I waited by her car. It was one of those old station wagons with a wood panel on the side. And then she comes out. She loads up ice cooler, food. And I run back inside because I want to grab her Polaroid because I want to take a picture of the Gettysburg Address in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And I run back outside, and I see a load of more stuff in the car. And this time, it's a Coleman lantern, sleeping bags, tents, wilderness maps. And she turns to me, and she says, surprise, we're going camping. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I did forget to mention one thing, which is we have a question and answer session after each talk. So if you have questions for Tom, let him go. And I should say that, um, <clears throat> although I do write some hiking stories in Seattle Times, there are a lot of other people who write about camping and so forth. So it's not like if you read the Seattle Times, like, there are no camping stories. <laughs> so I just want to point that out. And I am staying here tonight. And no, I'm not camping. Brendan was very generous to put me up in the cabin. Refugees might not want to go camping, but why do you think other people of color don't want to go camping or go skiing or whatever? Mm -hmm. Folks who were born in the U.S. Yeah. I think it's the same issue in terms of, we, people always talk about it's a socioeconomic, it's about, you know, if your parents doesn't take you camping or if you can't afford skis, then, you know, where else are you going to learn? But I think it's the same situation with being a refugee or an immigrant, it's like, it's, it's what you know, it's, it's your background, and I, it's just not that easy. And if it was easy, we would solve this, right? Because everyone, the state parks, national parks, they all care about this issue. And if it was that easy to just, you know, give them lessons or give them snowboard lessons or whatever, then we wouldn't have this situation, or the state would call it a problem if that minorities don't participate in that. I, I don't think there's a simple solution. I mean, it's just like who you know. I mean, if your parents don't ski, I mean, how else are you going to learn to ski? Um, and in fact, when I went to, we did a story on um, snowboarding because Snoqualmie Pass started that program. It's really called 
snowboarding for inner city kids, but it's actually a program for minorities. You just can't discriminate by race. So what the program did, what they call it um, inner city, where you can do by econ economic income level, whatever. It was the same difference, because I went out there, there was like half of the participants were refugees or immigrants. And you would think, oh, what a great idea. Well, let's, it's a snowboarding program, free lessons to kids. For one thing, they were freezing. Some of these kids were freezing. They, you know, they're not used to cold weather. Another thing, if you ever try to snowboard, it's, I think it's even harder to learn than skiing. And that first lesson was brutal. I mean, you know, they couldn't stay on the ski, they keep falling. Like, I can't imagine they actually enjoyed themselves. I mean, they were just falling up and down. And you need like five or six lessons to stay on the board. And I don't... And there's no easy solution when you look at this. Um, I, I don't know what the, what the solution would be. I mean, I think a lot of people agree, you know, or they think like minorities, okay, not as rich, or maybe socioeconomic barriers, but how do we remove that? And no one has figured that out. And I know that it's been discussed. I know it was in the New York Times story, and a lot of park rangers have talked about getting more people of color involved, but... I don't know how, I mean, will it influence some people? Sure, I mean, I'm sure some people out there that Snoqualmie Pass, that when I was there when all the minorities were snowboarding, a few kids who skateboard, it was easier for them, but I didn't think that, I would say that more than half of them didn't enjoy the experience out in snowboarding at all. I mean, I don't know how you can change that. I'm not even, I don't know. That's a long way of saying I don't know. Thanks for your talk. Um, so I'm wondering if you've seen um, a lot of people of color concerned about this. Um, is, there, is there a real demand from that side as well? Um, uh, you know, I, I don't see people of color. Well, you know, they don't, it seems like they don't, I wouldn't say they don't care about the outdoors. It's just not a priority. But I do know there are a lot of um, groups, I think Greg Nelson, leads a local group of minority hikers trying to get them more involved in the outdoors. But that's a problem, right? Because they don't care about it. So how do you make them care about it? It seems like it's just white people who's trying to start these minority programs. In fact, all these programs were started by non-minorities. Non I, I want to keep saying white people, sorry. But it was like non-minorities starting these programs. And it's, it's, it's just something that's just been perplexing and no one could figure this out. And I don't know what you can do. I mean, people said start them young. Start them young. Like, you know, get them out, teach them how to snowboard when they're six or whatever. Get them on hiking trips when they're eight or nine or ten. But the numbers doesn't bear that out. It's still pretty low. Um, I think the latest number, the Outdoor Outside Foundation found that 86% of hikers are white. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Hi, I really enjoy your talk because I'm a minority. <laughs> um, do you hike? I do hike, and I do camp not that much. Um, I do bike and sail sometimes. But um, So I was thinking that for most refugees or immigrant families, what's most important to us is education and getting up in the social ladder and income level. And when your parents don't encourage you to do these outdoor activities and just ask you to study, right, then you kind of grow up, as you said, not doing these activities. And then it's harder to find an interest later in life. Um, yesterday, we were out in the waters, and we saw a sailboat kind of come through. And it was 
a Asian family that was on the sailboat, which is pretty rare. But it also made sense because it's associated with higher income now, sailing. Right. And so then the, the parents want to expose their children to doing that. So I'm just thinking about, you know, as we think about what are the incentives to get people outdoors and enjoy it and understand the value of being outdoors, um, how can we appeal to the to these minorities through the angle of education and what can it do for you economically or maybe the, the types of friends and the communities that you would um, kind of begin to be part of that tribe that yeah. brings you up. Yeah. You know, so. and, and believe me, there are, just following this, if you ever talk to a park ranger or some of the heads of the association, they, they do try. They're trying to get kids, they want kids, parents to get their kids involved because there's only so many snowboarding lessons you can give, like, you know, like as a public service. You're going you to bust them out every weekend. No one does that. These lessons are only once a while. And even these hiking trips, it's not like you're taking them hiking every week. No one can afford to do that. We don't have the budget for that. So, right, they always emphasize the parents. Um, and I know I, I talk mostly about the refugee and immigrants, but I think if you even look at the blacks, um, blacks, Latinos, and who grew up here, it's like if their parents, if your parents don't ski or they don't hike, where else would you know? Where else would you learn? Yeah. But you're right, education would help, but it's just not easy. We just can't get them out there, right? Hi. Hi. Your talk is uh, sort of uncannily timely for me because although I've been going camping most of my life because I happen to like it, my family and I were exposed to some stunning racism and anti-Semitism camping out in the Okanagan in Canada just no a few weeks ago. We're still reeling. Um, and I, but I'm wondering if you can hook your, your analysis, which I think is so right on, I'm so grateful, onto the other issue that camping is very expensive. And it's an enormous accumulation of things, to, to try out the Marxist jargon, that isn't biodegradable. So right. the, the total irony of this nature business, when it's just murder, it's like stealing from Peter to pay Paul. I'm, I'm wondering if that's part of your hiking is bullshit analysis. <laughs> no, and I, I realize it is expensive. Um, and that, along with ski, or you could say it about anything, right? Like skiing, biking, sailing. Um, that's it's always... all German, sort of vaguely scary. That, that has a whole scary racist history, by the way. <laughs> it's, and I know even the city of Seattle, like they, they were taking donations for like camping gears, and they tried to treat it like a library where you could loan them out. I don't think a lot of people took them up in their offer even, unfortunately. I don't even know if that program is still around. I love the, so what I'm hearing is that camping and sailing are not objectively awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just about the money, why people don't do it. So why do white people like camping and sailing <laughs> so much? I'm not white. I should ask you so, that. Well, I don't think white people know why they like it. Because they would say because it's, an object, it's objectively awesome, yeah, right? Yeah. So if not because it's objectively awesome, yeah. So why do you me, think I, white people like it so much? You know, I don't know, but apparently if you Google this, 
people make fun of this like stuff that white people do yeah. that no one else does. It's actually it's, it's I, I didn't Google it, but it's supposed to be very funny if you Google it. And I wish I knew the answer. I don't know. I should ask you guys. Why do white people like outdoors more than everyone else? Uh, I'm a white guy. Hi. Why um, do white people? Wait, no. Just I can't speak for all white people. Um, but I will say that from my point of view, the outdoors, and particularly in the Pacific Northwest, is objectively awesome. Um, <laughs> now, I, I grew up in the Midwest, so I will also say that most of my friends growing up did not hike, did not camp, um, and they were all white. I grew up in a purebred part of the Midwest. And um, that was because, which resonates with what you said, that's what they did all day. You know, they're mostly rural. They're, you know, uh, farmers. And, you know, why go hiking? Why yeah. go camping? It's hot. Right. It's buggy. You know, you sleep on the ground. You know, why, why would you do that? Um, so, in, in, I'm not, that's definitely a socioeconomic step, you know, in, in that regard. When I moved out, I, I by the way, so how do you get involved when your parents don't hike or camp? Right. Do your kids hike? My kids do, but they, I raised them, right? right. <laughs> Up here. So, <laughs> However, my family did not. And um, the only reason I did was because I joined a paramilitary organization called the Boy Scouts of America. <laughs> <laughs> my kids do not belong, by the way. But, you know, really, I, I think, you know, again, you're right. It's what your parents do, or in my case, somehow I got involved in that with a relative minority of my friends, most of who, the, whom were uh, hunters, or you know, they had another reason why they were interested in the outdoors. Anyway, so that doesn't come back to the original question, why do white people um, hike? Uh, because when you can and you live in a place like the Pacific Northwest or my first hiking, real hiking experience was in the Southwest, it really is kind of objectively awesome. Yeah. Um, it's all a, a matter of perspective, you know. Yeah. No, and I, I do see that. I mean, if you're stuck in I-5 all the time, you do want to get out in the mountains. There, there is that, too. Yeah. It's really nice to get out in a way where your cell phone actually doesn't even work. You know, that's... Thank you. I will. Not, I, I won't be in the campground, I'll be in the cabin. Mm -hmm. So I'm white, but I have never camped. But I would like to um, say that I, I think you're entirely wrong. People, minorities are camping in a big way. Just the other day I walked outside of my studio, I looked over on the hillside, and there were all these beautiful little tents and tarps and Coleman stoves, and very multiracial. So, so you don't think? So no, you those, think minorities who, those who are refugees from class war, who've lost their jobs or have jobs that are so minimal they can't afford a home, are camping in, in a multitude. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. I, I, just, I just don't see it. But no, I, I'm not doubting you. I'm just not telling you that, that minorities and refugees and immigrants, I think it's all subjective, I guess. Uh, 
Brendan, is, this is more than one question. If you want to cut off before me, that's fine, but okay. So uh, we see everything through our histories, and uh, you actually present two histories as you, think, uh, as you talk about it. We have high-earning Asians at the moment who can afford the very expensive hiking equipment, but for reasons of their own particular history, whether it's being in refugee camps or parents are ha keeping them in uh, to achieve high grades, so right. they can be high earners, they don't do it. And we have, uh, let's say, uh, black Americans who have, uh, I think, 14 times less the income of the average white person who can't, can't afford the equipment, which is a different, so they're, they're obviously doing it not doing it from their history for different reasons. Now, it, we can't at the moment, it's very hard for us living in America, to imagine a moment beyond class and race where uh, we'll have a different configuration. Uh, so it's possible at that moment when our history has changed that people will look at hiking differently. You think, think it will that, happen? What? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, <laughs> I, I guess... Part of the rest of the day, we will talk about whether or not it can happen. What I, what I would say, though, is uh, to just incorporate something about growing up in a Midwest community where you don't hike, but coming over here and it being possible, you know, to put, again, my own history into the, into the hopper. I'm from New York City, the cityest of cityest slickers, or the slickerest of city slickers. Uh, I came out here in the seven, 1970, and at that time... Now, did you hike in New York City? I mean, what? not in New York City, but did you... New York City itself, yeah. Yeah. First 25 years. Arrived here in 1970, and the University of Washington is offering climbing courses that cost almost nothing, where every weekend someone drives you out. I didn't drive. I was from New York, so I had to get a lift. Out to a peak to climb, and everybody's showing you how to do it. And... Uh, it was easy to get into, and I did, and they stopped doing that when the pro problems of litigation and accidents made it too expensive to offer those things for free. So I'm just saying it is possible at some time for people with other histories, if we, if we can get beyond our current history, and if it is available that some people, not everybody, because one doesn't make those choices even with our histories, as a race or a class, some people will just say, oh, I'll try this out and some won't. But the current situation, I think, is quite accurately presented by your, uh, your take yeah. on it. So that's, those and, are thoughts. You know, thank you. Uh, and, and one of the things I should mention is like, uh, when it comes to minorities and skiing and the outdoors and so forth, a lot of ski resorts and a lot of equipment makers, as you can imagine, they're really concerned about this because if it's if the year 2044, if the minorities would become the non-white majority, that's a huge customer base that you need to reach in one way or another. So if anyone's taking the, this issue or thinks about this issue the most, it's a ski area and it's the people who make camping equipment. So thank you.